Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Hey guys, it's Lauren Eyrider. This week, it's the story of Hamid Hyatt, a U.S. citizen who was charged with terrorism in the frenzied time after the 9-11 attacks. Hamid was one of the Muslim men that were targeted by the FBI during its frantic search for terrorists still at large. But the story the FBI concocted about Hamid was full of crazy imagery and drama, almost like a movie or a comic strip. And that's because it wasn't true. Hamid Hyatt was innocent, but he served years behind bars before being exonerated. Now, since we aired this episode, Hamid has gotten a new job with Amazon, and he's working to rebuild his life. His new co-workers are often surprised to learn that he's been through the worst of the wrongful conviction stories and how well-known his story is online. In fact, Hamid's story was featured prominently on comedian Hassan Minaj's Netflix special, Patriot Act. Hassan Minaj even cited Hamid's story as the inspiration for the title of the show. While we wish that none of this had ever happened to Hamid, we're so glad his message is reaching a larger audience, and we wish him all the best. Welcome to Wrongful Conviction, False Confessions. I'm Laura Nyrider. And I'm Steve Drizzen. In the wake of 9-11, keeping America safe was everyone's priority. But what happens when an innocent man gets accused of terrorism based on a false confession? Today's case includes one of the most outlandish confessions I've ever heard. A thousand pole vaulting terrorists, all dressed up like Ninja Turtles. It's a story that sounds like the punchline of a joke instead of the path to a conviction. But for U.S. citizen Hamid Hyatt, the verdict was no joke at all. Usually we start each episode by telling you about a crime. But in today's story, there was both a crime on a scale we'd never seen before and no crime at all. You see, this case took place right after the horrific 9-11 attacks. Thousands of Americans had died, and pressure was building on our government to prevent more attacks. 
Make no mistake, there was a lot of good police work done to keep us all safe. But sometimes fear started to override good decision-making. Some law enforcement efforts became driven by panic and even prejudice, not proof. This story is one of the times we got it wrong. In 2005, California native and U.S. citizen Hamid Hyatt was accused of being part of a homegrown terrorist sleeper cell. Years later, the government admitted that no such sleeper cell ever existed. But Hamid had falsely confessed. He spent more than a decade in prison before being cleared. As prosecutors prepare for trial, they review the evidence that the FBI agents obtain in the case. And they look at the interrogation tapes. And you have to wonder what the prosecutors in this case were thinking when they saw these tapes. What were they thinking when the corroboration of this case was so thin? Hamid is one of the first post-9-11 terrorism defendants to be exonerated, and he probably won't be the last. His story is a caution to us all. When we're talking about our national security, there's nothing more important than getting it right. Hamid's story takes place in Lodi, California, a medium-sized town halfway between San Francisco and Sacramento. Lodi's downtown looks like the set of an old western, complete with a train depot from gold rush days. But if you go south a mile, you'll find a large Pakistani-American community where families wear traditional clothing and center their lives around the local mosque. We'll get to Lodi in a minute, but our story starts in Oregon. That's where FBI agents traveled in October 2001, looking for a suspected terrorist named Nassim Khan. The Nassim Khan they found was a 28-year-old convenience store employee. The FBI quickly realized this guy had nothing to do with terrorism. He simply had the same name as their suspect. But with the FBI at his door, Nassim smelled an opportunity. He gave the agents the biggest tip he could conjure up. He claimed to have seen Ayman al-Zawahiri, one of the most wanted terrorists in the world, at a mosque in Lodi, California. It's ludicrous, absolutely ludicrous, that Osama bin Laden's number two person would make it into the United States without detection and, of all places, settle in Lodi, California. The FBI, to its credit, didn't believe Nassim. They figured out soon enough that he had a reputation for lying. Even his own mother later called Nassim a bag full of lies, air, and deceit. But this was a month after 9-11, and the government was desperate to recruit informants who could infiltrate Muslim American communities and expose any sleeper cells. Somehow, they decided Nassim was their guy. Being hired as an informant was a pretty big deal for Nassim. He went from working in a convenience store to getting a cool FBI nickname, Wildcat. He earned hundreds of thousands of dollars on the U.S. government payroll. The feds even paid for his car washes. In exchange, they asked him to target the Lodi, California community. By early 2002, Nassim wormed his way into Lodi's Pakistani neighborhoods. He started befriending people, looking for any information the FBI might consider useful. And pretty soon, Nassim began focusing on the Hyatt family, especially 19-year-old Hamid. Now, the Hyatt family was well-known in Lodi. 
They had no history of political involvement or extremism whatsoever. Hamid's dad, Umar, was the local ice cream truck driver. The pairing of Nassim and Hamid was a strange pairing from the get-go. Nassim was 10 years older than Hamid. And Hamid, 19 or so at the time, acted much more immaturely than his age. He had suffered a terrible bout of meningitis years earlier, which left him cognitively and physically slower. As a child, Hamid had split his time between his home in the U.S. and his relative's home in Pakistan. Because of all the travel, he'd only finished elementary school, and he didn't have many friends in the States. So when Nassim the informant befriended him, Hamid couldn't believe his luck. Nassim was paying attention to Hamid, and very few people in the community in Lodi paid much attention to Hamid. Nassim was older. He had a fancy car and apparently endless money. This is the guy who wanted to chat up Hamid? Hamid was in. Nassim and Hamid became friends, or at least so Hamid thought. Over the next year or two, Nassim and Hamid started having hours of phone conversations that Nassim was secretly recording. On those calls, Nassim portrayed himself as an extremist and told Hamid he'd been involved in jihadi activities for years. Pretty soon, hapless Hamid started trying to impress Nassim by making up fake stories about his own exploits. Once, Hamid said he participated in a Taliban attack. Another time, he claimed he'd been held in a Pakistani jail. And when Nassim said that he wanted to go to a terrorist training camp, Hamid said that sounded cool. Fast forward a year to 2003. Hamid's 21, and his parents take him to Pakistan to find a bride. For Nassim, this trip was a chance to up the ante, to bully Hamid into actually going to a terrorist training camp. He starts telling Hamid that he's going to come to Pakistan himself and force Hamid into jihadi training. But Hamid refuses. He fends Nassim off with one excuse after another. It's too hot to go to a training camp. It's too difficult. I need to stay with my sick mother. It's pretty obvious Hamid has zero interest in becoming a terrorist. Finally, he straight out tells Nassim he's never going to a camp. It was their last phone call. Hamid gets married in Pakistan and ends up staying there for two years until June 2005, when he decides to go back to the United States. He boards a plane in Pakistan. With his whole family. But the plane gets diverted to Tokyo because it turns out Hamid is on the no-fly list. The whole Hyatt family is ushered off the plane, and the FBI questions them about why they were overseas and who they were with. They even ask if the men Hamid was hanging out with had facial hair. Eventually, the family's allowed to get back on the plane and fly to California. But a day or two later, the FBI shows up again at the Hyatt family home and brings Hamid in to the Sacramento office for more questioning. Now, let's step back for a minute. By June 2005, there'd been a three-year, multi-agency, federal terrorism task force investigation that revolved around Nassim Khan and his stories. None of Nassim's claims yielded any real information about terrorism, despite all the money he'd been paid. So by mid-2005, the FBI was feeling pressure to show results in the worst way. And they got results from the Hyatt family in the worst way.
Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. (sighs) Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-lunch pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Hamid's interrogation begins on June 3rd, 2005, at about 11.30 in the morning. And it would go on for hours and hours before the agents turned on the video cameras. They start taping at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. You can see skinny little Hamid, very nervous, sitting in a chair that's pushed against the wall of a small windowless room. He's facing two FBI agents who are staring him down. The policy of the FBI at this time was that the decision to record interrogations was left in the discretion of agents. So it was unusual that they would record these interrogations, but thank God they did, because otherwise we wouldn't have the record that we do have about how at least some of Hamid's interrogation went down. As soon as the tape's rolling, the agents accuse Hamid of spending between three and six months at a terrorist training camp in Pakistan. And then come two lies. First, they say he failed a polygraph that he apparently took earlier that day. Second, they claim to have satellite photographs of a camp, implying Hamid's in those photos. Neither was true. And then the agents offer him help as long as he talks. Over and over and over, they promise that they're there to help him. Hamid looks desperate to please these guys. He says he wants to cooperate for my country. For my country, I'll do anything, you know, sir. Because, you know, these guys are hurting our country a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, it's important. Because, uh, you know, every day in the news we see, sir, you know, our troops are working. They're very hard for, you know, making right. peace in the whole world. Mm-hmm. Right. Why they're making peace? They're making peace for us, so we can live together, all of us. Yeah. And what do they do at these camps? They're, what, what they're doing is ch- teaching people how to, how to kill American troops. Of course. Right? That's what the camps are all about. The interrogation goes on for hours, into the night, until Hamid starts breaking. He tells the agents he did go to a camp in Pakistan for several months, but his story makes no sense. It's laughable. They ask him when he'd gone to the camp. 
At first, Hamid said it was during the hot season, but then he says it was during the cold season. When they ask him to describe the camp, Hamid's answer is just pathetic. He says the whole place had only four weapons in it, a shotgun, two pistols, and a machine gun. He said the only weapon that he had handled was actually a pistol, and he had only shot it three or four times. What kind of training is that? The agents ask Hamid where the camp was, and he keeps switching his story there, too. First, it was in rural Afghanistan. Then it was in rural Pakistan. You're all over the map here. Oh. Yeah. And you're not helping yourself by, by doing that. You know, so one, one minute you're saying Northwest Frontier, next minute you're saying Kashmir. Yeah, you're saying right. where this building was, which city was it? Yes. Yeah. I'll say Balakor. It's not that you will say. You know where it is. You know where the building is. Tell me where was it? Balakor, NWFP. In NWFP, Balakor. And of course, remember, Hamid had said none of this to Nassim Khan, despite years of recorded phone calls. Instead, he told Nassim he'd never go to a training camp. It's only after this interrogation that Hamid starts saying whatever he thinks the agents want to hear. And piece by piece, the agents feed him nearly all the information in his confession down to the types of buildings he was supposedly going to attack in the United States. Okay. There are certain kinds of targets that, you know, are, are good targets. You know, if you're going to be worth your salt as a jihadi, you need to know about those targets. Like buildings and, I'll say, buildings. What kind of buildings? Bigger buildings, you know, buildings. Okay. Financial buildings, uh, uh, private uh, buildings, commercial buildings? Maybe, you know, it's commercial projects and, like, those kind of buildings, I'll say. Um, all right, you, you're not... You yeah, know. but I'm not sure about the building you guys are talking about. The big one, they'll say, you know, you know finance, I'll say. What, what else? What else did they tell you about? Hospitals, maybe? Hamid's confession is not very believable, so the FBI needs corroboration. While those agents are questioning Hamid, other agents bring in his dad, Umar, the ice cream truck driver, and start questioning him, too. They tell Umar that Hamid admitted going to a training camp in Pakistan, and they start pressuring Umar to say he also went to visit Hamid, just like a parent would check out his kid's college. Eventually, Umar agrees that he had gone to visit Hamid, but his story is totally wild. Hamid had described a rural camp in a forested area, but Umar says the camp's in Rawalpindi, a two-million-person city. And Umar's description? Well, he says he saw 1,000 fighters at this camp, and they're all in a huge underground basement practicing pole vaulting. Do you know how high a ceiling has to be in order to pole vault? I'll take shit you don't do in a basement for 500, Alex. And it gets even crazier, because according to Umar, those pole vaulters are dressed up like ninja turtles. Umar later explained that he lifted this story from the movie, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. He'd recently seen it on TV. All this goes on and on. Both men keep spinning stories, and the agents aren't really getting anywhere. At 3 a.m., Hamid starts complaining that his head hurts. He asks to go home and get some sleep. You, you tell me Kashmir, you tell me Afghanistan, Northwest Frontier. Right blame it on whatever you want to blame it on, but what's going to end up happening tonight is we're going to end up arresting you. Okay, so come back here tomorrow. Okay? No, no, you're not leaving here tonight now. No, I mean, uh, tomorrow I'm going to be here tonight, staying here in the building. No, you're going to go to jail. Going to jail. Yeah. So I'm going to get a place to sleep over there like that. Instead, the agents arrest him 
and charge him with lending material support to terrorism. Suddenly, he's facing up to 30 years in prison. For his part, Umar's also arrested, based on the crazy Ninja Turtle statement. He's charged with two counts of lying to federal agents. The Hyatt's arrest was a huge news story. Now, some media outlets were skeptical. They ran stories highlighting the pole vaulting and the Ninja Turtles and the crazy mismatch between what Hamid and his dad had said. But other media bought it all, hook, line, and sinker. They covered the story as proof that domestic sleeper cells existed. You throw a word out there, you throw the word terror, you throw the word martyr, you throw the word jihad out in the public space, and people will believe almost anything because the fear is so great. There's a federal trial to get ready for, and the Hyatt family hires lawyers. But while the lawyer that Umar hires is very experienced, Hamid gets a novice. She'd never gone before a jury before. The plan was for her to imitate whatever Umar's lawyer did. But that was no plan at all. The cases were totally different. Very different charges. Very different confessions. Hamid needed his own defense. But he didn't get one. Or at least, not a very good one. I mean, I've had some trial experience in my career. I know my way around a criminal courtroom. We've had contested hearings in our own post-conviction cases. And I know more about false confessions than a lot of other attorneys who practice in this area. But there is no way that I would ever take a case like this. This case required a trial lawyer and one who had worked with a security clearance and had done cases in federal court against the FBI. Hamid's lawyer had some of the best false confession experts in her backyard, including Dr. Richard Leo at the University of San Francisco. But when Hamid's trial rolled around in 2006, his lawyer didn't call Dr. Leo to testify. Hamid's lawyer also didn't adequately challenge the government's claim that he carried a jihadi prayer in his wallet. Hamid did carry a note, a tawiz, a standard Pakistani Muslim prayer for good health and protection. It was a gift from Hamid's uncle after the meningitis. But Hamid's lawyer didn't clearly explain that the note had nothing to do with terrorism, and the jury was left to think the worst. I mean, it's a travel prayer. You know, Jews travel with 18 cents in their front pocket when they go on an airplane. All right. Well, I feel comfortable traveling with you, Steve. You've got me covered spiritually. No, I kind of elapsed Jew. Okay. All right. (laughs) (laughs) But people have these prayers with regard to travel. And that's what my understanding of this Tawiz was. Yeah. I mean, the language that that expert used makes it sound very ominous. But I'm not sure that that was the right translation. Despite a pretty weak defense, Hamid's conviction was far from guaranteed. Even after hearing his confession, the jury still took nine days to reach a decision. But in the end, their verdict? Guilty. Later, it came out that there had been instances of jury misconduct. During deliberations, the jury foreman himself had said that if you put all Muslims in the same costume, they all look alike. Umar Hyatt's trial, on the other hand, ended in a mistrial. No verdict at all. He ended up pleading guilty to some minor customs violations and was released. But Hamid? On September 10th, 2007, Hamid Hyatt was sentenced to 24 years in prison. It was one day before the sixth anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. 
Federal prison is no picnic for anyone, especially not a young Muslim man who's been convicted of terrorism. Most inmates are allowed only a limited number of visits, something like once a week. Hamid was allowed only one visit per year from his family members. His dad, Umar, didn't get permission to see him for more than eight years. But even while Hamid endured prison, he grew up. For the first time, he was meeting people of different faiths and backgrounds, albeit behind bars. And he began to realize that those things he'd said to impress Nassim about terrorism being cool were toxic. When a reporter interviewed him in 2016, Hamid retracted everything. He told the reporter, It was wrong what I said. I totally disagree with myself. I didn't know much then. I wasn't open-minded about a lot of stuff. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ends. Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-lunch pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. So Hamid is in prison, and he's doing his time, and his case is winding its way through the system. He's losing at every stage. And then Hamid gets a new lawyer. A great lawyer by the name of Dennis Reardon. For those of you who are real true crime junkies, you might remember Dennis Reardon as one of the leading lawyers on the team that freed the West Memphis Three. For us, of course, the important thing about the case is that this was not about just a bad trial. You can have cases like that where someone's rights are violated. We passionately believed and knew, we knew it was an actual innocence case. So Dennis starts investigating the time that Hamid spent in Pakistan between 2003 and 2005. Remember, the government said that during those two years, Hamid went off for three months to a training camp. And what does Dennis discover? Alibi witnesses, 18 of them. They described in great detail his daily routine. He was generally uh, almost every day in the native village, except for the time when he took two trips to Rawalpindi with his mother. So there were witnesses from Rawalpindi. There were witnesses from the village of Babudi. Uh, He had never been out of their sight for more than at most a couple of days 
and had never attended a camp, uh, as the government alleged, for three to six months. Person after person comes forward to say that when Hamid was in Pakistan, he was living with family and friends the whole time. There were no three-month unexplained absences. He spent his days playing soccer, not training for jihad. Hamid was no terrorist. He was totally innocent. Dennis prepares an appeal based on these alibis. He's granted a hearing, a chance to make the case for Hamid's innocence. The alibi witnesses testify at the hearing over a live video feed from Pakistan. Dennis also calls that false confession expert to the stand, Dr. Richard Leo. And Dr. Leo testified that this confession was useless. It wasn't worth the tape that it was recorded on. And of course, if you look at the uh, interrogation itself, one of the almost humorous aspects of it was that he was uh, painfully thin and hardly looked like someone who had trained for terrorist activities and in fact gave this description during this marathon interrogation where he's trying very hard to please them and give them answers. Well, I was in the camp. Well, did you ever do arms trading? Well, they gave me a rifle once, but it was too heavy for me, so they never gave it to me again. And so what they had me do was peel vegetables in the kitchen. The media is following all of this. A PBS Frontline episode had been made questioning Hamid's conviction. A written piece in The Intercept did the same thing. And while the hearing was going on, an episode of the Netflix series The Confession Tapes also pointed to Hamid's innocence. His case was attracting supporters. Momentum was building fast. So what does the government do? They offer Hamid his freedom, but he's got to plead guilty. As a lawyer, you're obligated to go to a client and say, the government is still talking about potentially helping you out if you provide them with information about Pakistan. And he said, I have nothing to provide them with. Now, we've heard this story way too often. As soon as a case starts falling apart, the government offers a deal. It lets prosecutors save face, and it's pretty hard for any defendant to turn down. But Hamid? He said, I've gone through all of that, and I am not going to stand up and say that I did something I didn't do. And we said, you know, we have a very strong case, but there's no way we can guarantee you that it will succeed. And he said, I'm prepared to see this through. Years ago, he refused to go to a camp when Nassim pressured him. Now, he refuses to say he went to a camp. He turns down the deal. Instead, he bets that the truth will set him free. Turns out, he was right to take that bet. You just see, before you click on it, there's an order of the district court. And, you know, you're talking about (laughs) 10 seconds of absolute terror. And then I clicked on it, and the conviction is overturned. I'll admit it. I wept. I I really did. On July 30th, 2019, after 14 years behind bars, Hamid Hyatt's conviction was thrown out based on his trial attorney's ineffectiveness. If Hamid's lawyer had called those alibi witnesses, the court found he would have been acquitted. So where's Hamid today, Laura? Hamid was freed on August 9th, 2019, and formally exonerated just a few months ago on Valentine's Day 2020. The government dismissed all charges against him. He's the first post-9-11 international terrorism defendant to be officially cleared of any wrongdoing. And his family knew that he had been freed, but they didn't know what was the next step. Family was brought to the Council on American-Islamic Relations not knowing that he would be there. 
And the, the video of his mother seeing him for the first time in 14 years because she was never able to visit him. And then the same with his father. <laughs> it was extraordinary. Everyone <laughs> wept uh, just watching it. Since his exoneration, Hamid's been taking life one day at a time. He's living in California, although not in Lodi. And he's reconnecting with his family, including nieces and nephews who were born while he was locked up. But like all exonerees, he's struggling to navigate a world that's really different than the one he was taken from in 2005. When I saw him a few months ago, I asked him if he was okay. He looked at me for a long time and simply said, No. I'm not. Hamid's got a lot of healing to do. But the good news? He's got an enormous number of supporters who believe in him. And Hamid, we're here to support you, too. Hey, Hamid, is that you? Hey, Laura, how you doing? Good, good. What are you up to today? Not much. Where are you staying these days? You staying with your family? Yes, I'm with my family, yes. What's it like to be back with your family after so many years away? Truly a blessing. They always believed in you. My family was there. My legal team was there. All my supporters. That was my hope, my strength. Where do you see yourself five years from now? I just want to go back to school, get my high school diploma, and then go to college. After that, hopefully I'll find a good job. I see you on social media posting pictures of you with your nieces and nephews. It's amazing. You've been out, what, since August, and you're already way better than me at Instagram, so... (laughs) (laughs) The checks and balances in our criminal justice system failed miserably in this case. And I think it's not because these are bad people or they were trying to frame Hamid Hyatt and his father. I think it's because they were operating in the panic and fear that everybody in this country was living under in the wake of 9-11. And in that context, I think standards for what a good case is sometimes get ignored. Mm -hmm. Standards start being cut short, and the result is the taking of more innocent life, right? In this case, 14 years from the life of Hamid Hayat. When Hamid was released, he said, I still think this is a dream. I wake up, and I still think I'm in prison. I'll never be able to pay back my sisters and brothers, none of my supporters. I'm your servant until the day of judgment. Wrongful Conviction, False Confessions is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number 1. Special thanks to our executive producer, Jason Flom, and the team at Signal Company Number 1, Executive producer, Kevin Wardus. Senior producer, Ann Pope. And additional production and editing by Connor Hall. Special thanks to Jaji Hammer for additional script editing and for wrangling and writing like a madwoman. Our music was composed by Jay Ralph. You can follow me on Instagram or Twitter at Laura Nyrider. And you can follow me on Twitter at S. Drizzen. For more information on the show, visit wrongfulconvictionpodcast.com and be sure to follow the show on Instagram at wrongfulconviction 
on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.